Yeah, I'm talking to Dr. Kelly Brogan today. Uh, Kelly Brogan is a holistic psychiatrist, author of the New York Times bestselling book, uh, Mind of Your Own, Own Yourself, the children's book, A Time for Rain, and co-editor of the landmark textbook, Integrative Therapies for Depression. She is the founder of the online healing program, Vital Mind Reset, and the membership community, Vital Life Project. She completed her psychiatric training and fellowship at NYU Medical Center after graduating from Cornell University Medical College and has a BS from MIT in systems neuroscience. Um, Thank you for being here. It's a pleasure. Uh, I've been looking forward to this chat because I, um, you know, I've been into terrain theory now for uh, over two years and um, you know, psychiatry and the like psychological component of all of that ha- has remained sort of a mystery to me. Um, so, yeah, I guess I first want to ask you, you know, what uh, what's psychiatry like within the scope of of terrain? What are the major uh, differences? You've obviously had a very conventional um you know, you went through the whole conventional process, you know, MIT and Cornell and all that. So, uh, yeah, what is that like? Yeah, I conventional is uh, a euphemistic term for my former belief system, you know, because I really was almost um, in the the entitled aggressor energy in many ways. Um, I believed so much in the uh, chemical model, the medical model of our behavioral, emotional, and even cognitive beingness that I participated in, you know, imposing that on, on people, you know, in New York city where I trained, I trained at a hospital called Bellevue and it was a city hospital. It's got 13 locked units. Um, and most people would never imagine that, the you know benevolent hand of allopathic medicine would be participating in forced electric shock therapy, forced injected psychotropic medical uh, interventions, um, and the retention of individuals literally against their will behind a locked door in a hospital setting. Um, so you know I've I've been a libertarian at heart for many many years, and so it's not like I was you know itching to lock people up against their will, but I I certainly believed that much that I participated generally in such a system. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. And this system, I've realized at its core, um, has incredible emotional fragility, right? And emotional immaturity, if you think of it as a spectrum. Uh, because when I look back on when I was in college, um, I worked on a, at a suicide hotline. And when I look back and my first exposure to psychiatry was through that hotline. And it's called Nightline. And um, 
I recognized that the reason I was attracted to that, sorry, my chickens are really. Oh, those are chickens? Yeah, those are chickens. Cool. That's so funny. They're so cute. Uh, If you're wondering what that is, it's not my stomach or something. Anyway, um, (laughs) so, you know, when I look back, I'm like, why did I do that? I mean, it was like up all night, a couple times a month just to answer these like distressed phone calls. And it's. It went through one lens is because I'm such a good person and I wanted to help others, right? And a lot of us, especially in, in the healing and, and medical arts, tell ourselves that story and are told that story by others. Um, I've come to understand human behavior quite differently at this stage in my life where I acknowledge the primacy of human needs um, and specifically emotional needs as, as king, right? That cannot be dethroned. And sure. I had um, this this need, which was to not experience the unsafety that would arise literally within my nervous system when I was exposed to another's distress. And so I believe that I became a doctor um, and specifically a psychiatrist because it offered me the promise of a quick fix way out for myself as the provider, right? So it seems like it's for my patients, but really I'm the one who can't handle uh, or couldn't, because then I actually became quite masterful at handling just this um, in my practice when I devoted it to helping people off medications. But I was the one who couldn't handle the distress enough to apply curiosity along with this per- person I was, you know, transiently partnered with so that we could better understand what the message is. What is this symptom here for? What is this emotion trying to communicate about a fundamentally unmet need for this person? And how could I hold space for that person as difficult as it might be for me um, for a sufficient time frame for that emotion to alchemize for them, right? I wasn't able to do that. So I went into uh, the hallow halls of allopathic medicine because it felt better to be in control of suppressing, managing, and otherwise, you know, compartmentalizing this thing called the emotional human experience or the the ways in which energies run through the physical body. And I didn't understand how thoroughly this uh, aversion, this fear-based aversion to um, the experience of vulnerability threaded its way through my life and through my medical career um, until I started to look at uh, vaccination. which happened when I was pregnant, actually, um, I began to, well, I was specialized as a fellow, uh, you know, it's like post-residency level specialization. I was specialized in um, prescribing to pregnant women, psychotropic drugs. Wow. And, you know, I was doing kind of green integrative medicine because that was kind of like a hip thing at the time in New York. And I would like give a little fish oil or whatever, along with their Prozac and or whatever yeah it's like prozac haven't heard of that one before oh yeah (laughs) there's a pharmaceutical fish oil like you can prescribe it it's a thing it's it's part of the you know the term i learned is recuperation um which is a word that means i don't know the formal definition but it essentially means when um there is co-option of a seeming oppositional entity under the guise of cooperation Right. So you look at naturopathy or midwifery or the Waldorf school system, and you can see how they've been licensed, licensed through, you know, all of these conventional agencies. And they've been offered support and funding seemingly out of like, you know, sort of 
collaborative, like, oh, you do your alternative thing, we're going to do our conventional thing, and we'll just work together, right? But what really happens is that there is a conditioning and a power dynamic such that these entities that would otherwise be a threat to the existing dominant paradigm are rendered uh, really impotent uh, because of their 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 acquired dependency on the system that they would threaten. Does that make sense? So you know, it's just very controlled by them. Exactly. Yeah, and you could call it also like controlled opposition. If exactly right, loose term. But anyway, so I was specializing in prescribing psychotropics to pregnant and breastfeeding women. And I, uh, I had the experience of um, treating women who uh, went through second trimester miscarriages, which, you know, if you can imagine, um, is one of the more traumatic things I think an adult woman can experience. Mm-hmm. And um, I was prescribing at the time. And I was pretty up on the literature, you know, like defending my, um, my slash their right to access these medications, uh, even though they were pregnant. And so I, um, really wanted to make sure <laughs> that it wasn't the medication that I prescribed that was responsible because there wasn't a ton of literature on, um, later, you know, term miscarriages for antidepressants, for example. And, uh, in more thoroughly exploring, you know, kind of like through a forensic lens, like what actually happened, I learned that these women in two cases had had a double flu shot during the pregnancy and at like a CVS. And so here I was like talking to their husband and consenting them for hours on end and documenting in all these ways I had learned from, you know, my training. And they like waltz into a pharmacy as a pregnant woman and get these injections. And um, at that time I was still a believer in prophylactic injectables, right? Mm-hmm. And at that moment, I went and I looked up the teratology, um, you know, like, is there data on whether or not these are risky for women? And I just found like a black hole abyss of nothingness, right? Like there's there's literally no data at all right. on the, the safety, let alone efficacy, um, if there ever could be proven efficacy around uh, an intervention that is preventing something from happening. Um, I don't know if people listening could see my eye roll or <laughs> make sure that was clear. Uh, anyway, but um, I was really fired up by that. And so I started to research, um, you know, started with the flu vaccine and then I was about to have a baby and I started to look into the happy vaccine, which I would have to decide about, you know, on the day of birth of my uh, daughter. And I was working with a midwife already at that point, not because I was some like earth mama, like crunchy bohemian. Mm-hmm. Uh, but because I was a know-it-all and I didn't like the doctor I had started to work with because I didn't feel she knew the literature as well as I did. And when I like dove into the literature myself on medical interventions around birth, I was like, um, none of these have sufficient evidence, physiotomy, fetal monitoring, induction, let alone C-section. And that was sort of how I started this process of through the literature itself, dismantling my previously really, um, embedded understanding of what these interventions have to offer. Uh, But it would be many years actually uh, before I would start to question germ theory itself, because a lot of vaccine advocacy, I'm sure you're well aware, um, is actually very heavily predicated on germ theory and just a different kind of assessment of the dangers that exist in disease, contagious infectious disease, and relative to um, the injection. 
And that model, I call it playing in their sandbox, right? So you're, you can throw around their sand all you want, but it's still their damn sandbox. And you are essentially becoming like the prime harvest for, uh, you know, this, this fear-based oppositional energy. And you're trapping a lot of people in what is, in my estimation, still a fear-based um, consciousness. And that's why when I jailbroke myself from germ theory, uh, I didn't actually land in squarely in terrain theory because I, I was re- my exit was really facilitated by uh, a rubric called German New Medicine, um, which is slightly different. Um, we could talk about that, but uh, I, I also had that at that point, um, the privilege of working with my mentor, Dr. Nicholas Gonzalez, who had helped disabuse me of any fear of cancer. You know, like I just was never afraid of it again because of working with him and seeing that it wasn't what I was taught that it was. And um, it's this, you know, opportunity of a lifetime to get integrated from the physical to the psychological, emotional, and spiritual levels and dimensions of you and to develop a ritual of self-care that will ultimately um, land you in the camp of his published case reports where there's, you know, decades and decades of life after a terminal cancer diagnosis, if you, if you so choose. And all of that, you know, led me to this place I am now where it's just, it's not even relevant to my life to think about for me or my kids, what the medical system has to offer. Like, I don't have to fight it because it doesn't matter. It's not, doesn't, it's not a part of something I consider. Like, I don't like have a pain and think about, Oh, should I take a Tylenol? Is this bad enough for an Advil? Like it's not even a part of the rubric because the whole understanding of what's happening in that moment is shifted out of the, this is bad, must go away uh, paradigm of really what is warring with the body. Yeah. And I mean, I mean, they can conflict with their own information. I mean, I think it's funny that they were, you know, they would prescribe like psychotropics, um, or any injectables to a pregnant woman. Um, there's, I mean, there's an age limit on the honey that I buy. Uh, <laughs> you know, I mean, like I was laughing with uh, my friend Sophia. I think you know her um, ab- about that because there's just all kinds of weird age restrictions on on basic foods like raw milk and. But but it's okay to take these like you know crazy psychotropic drugs and inject yourself with whatever is in the flu vaccine that year. Um, well, so. there's like a premise, right? Like, right. Cause you can look, always look, look at the level where it's like benign intentions and, you know, we're just trying to help this population, but they have a fetus on board. And, you know, so obviously we can't do a randomized trial because we can't subject, you know, one patient, pregnant patient population to something that we don't know much about. And, and then once we know that something is effective, well, we can't deprive people of it. That's unethical too. And so it's like this really confusing demographic where instead they just gather passive data. So there are pharmaceutical registries where there's voluntary, just like the VAERS, you know, database, there's voluntary reporting of outcomes or adverse outcomes, of course. Um, and these, you know, Glaxo will collect 25,000 cases of SSRI exposure, and they'll crunch the numbers and publish these reports that say, you know, most of these kids turned out with 10 fingers and 10 toes. Um, And we monitored them for six weeks after birth, and they seem fine. And, you know, so the signals of harm really grew out of tens of thousands of reported cases. And theoretically, there are probably many, many more, the the dots around which were not connected. 
Um, but this way of interacting with the pregnant population is really interesting because it was always this, you know, even the seeming Sophie's choice of should I prescribe to them or should I just let them be depressed is a false dichotomy, right? Like it's not just those two choices. It's not like I must prescribe them medication or maintain them on medication or otherwise they just have untreated depression slash psychotropic withdrawal that we're calling a relapse. Um, there's a whole nother lane. It's just that you can't perceive that that lane even exists because you have to shift out of an entire paradigm of consciousness. And the easiest way I've characterized that and many have is victim consciousness. Like when victim consciousness is something that is starting to harm you as much as help you and support you and serve you, then you're ready for this third path for this other way of being. Uh, because otherwise you're, you're sort of like in the golden handcuffs, especially as a pregnant woman, you're like, do I do this for myself, even if it harms my baby? And just like, oh, it's like a minefield of emotional trauma, honestly. And, you know, we do what we do until we are ready to do something better. And we're not ready until like the second before we're ready. And I've seen that in my own process and my own journey a dozen times where if somebody came and told me something I wasn't ready to hear, I would tell them to fuck off. And <laughs> if it arises from within me, you know, then within 30 seconds, I could be ready to roll. So it's um, a very ephemeral like process, you know, in that way. Yeah, I think people definitely need to go. They need to kind of go their own path and uh, be allowed to to grow into it. Um, I think I've realized that more over the over the past couple of years, and I'm I'm less likely to kind of meddle as as uh, Amanda Vollmer says. Um, yes. You know why she made a good point in my in one of my podcasts with her. Um, you know why are you meddling? Um, I agree. So that yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, but so how do you explain this to people who are, um, you know, still on taking drugs when they're in pain? I mean, I'll admit myself, you know, I get terrible migraines, you know, and uh, I don't really know what the answer is besides taking an Advil uh, sometimes. Um, so how do you explain that to people? And like, you know, also like um, people were like, you know, the person who's like talking to their wallpaper or, you know, having really difficult uh, mental illness, if you call it that, um, what's the, what's the answer? So the first thing um, is the role of consent, right? It's like what you were starting to talk to about with meddling, right? Yeah. Um, if you are deeply interested in better understanding this thing you call your body, right? And the way that it interfaces with your consciousness and your heart and your emotions and your experience. Um, if you are open to that and you want to learn more and you recognize that there is going to be a tariff, right? Like there's going to be a token you must pay to get into the kingdom of expanded contact with your divine nature. At least this is my worldview then that readiness is potential energy. And it will carry you through the process of very personal discovery around what that migraine means, for example, right? It may not even remotely be interesting to you at this stage in your life. Maybe like you're building a business or you're getting a divorce or like you're having a baby or you're fighting with your mom or like you gotta find somebody who can mow the lawn for an amount you can afford or whatever. Mm -hmm. Our attention is 
the, that vector of consent in many ways, right? So when you decide that your priority in life is to discover what this symptom is trying to tell you about you, then you will focus your attention there. That's a part of the reason why I have always understood money to be um, one of the more powerful symbols of that attention. And it's why I charged a lot of money for my consultation and continue to charge what many could argue is a lot of money for my online um, offerings because it, it, it is the, the action of consenting to your own donation of prana, right? The own donation of your, um, your energy field your brain needs support and new ollie brainy chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health made with scientifically backed ingredients like thai ginger l-theanine and caffeine brainy chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus stay chill or get energized be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com that's o-l-l-y.com these statements have not been evaluated by the food and drug administration this product is not intended to diagnose treat cure or prevent any disease If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss to this discovery process. And that's all that's required because with that intention and attention, it unfolds. Now I have a very biased um, approach, which is a kind of hierarchy of uh, needs and like a Maslow's hierarchy, like an order of operations, right? So like, if you were telling me about your migraines, knowing nothing about what you've already done or tried, and it doesn't matter because the moment you apply your attention anew, you're starting from scratch. It doesn't matter if you tried the same damn thing a hundred times before the alchemy of your environment, of your connections, of your relationships, and of your readiness is totally new now, 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 right? So my bias is to say first, the chopping wood and carrying water of your lifestyle choices. Why? Because it's a way to infuse the body with a manageable access to our God creative power, right? So when you change your breakfast or you change your bedtime or you start to drink this kind of water um, or you take that out of your diet, you're making a choice, one that you have total control over. And when you feel in your body, something change and shift, there is the delight of contact with that power that you always had. Right. And you cannot unknow that. Mm Mm-hmm. So from that moment forward, you know that your choices matter. Like they're actually all that matters and they're actually all that you can control. So you start to recognize that your choice is your inborn superpower. Sometimes the choices we have are not in this material dimension. Sometimes it's just how we're narrating it, right? What's the story you're going to tell yourself? But you always retain that nexus of control within Right. So I would say first start with, you know, the chopping wood, carrying water of your lifestyle choices all day long, generating awareness of the choices that you're making around every single thing you eat, around every single thing you drink, around what you do with your body when, around the products that you're 
you know, the laundry detergent you're using, whatever. So you develop this and that's, you know, the protocols I've put in my book and that I have in Vital Mind Reset. It's very basic. Lots of people, lots of ways to access this kind of, um, these tools. However, I think that it's only when you've sent that, and I'm a big believer in the month, right? Like my online program is 44 days, like two weeks of which are brainwashing. <laughs> um, once you, once you offer your nervous system, this signal of safety that comes through that little hit of empowerment. Yeah. And yeah. also, you know, again, these models are like shifting, like I can barely keep them in my fingers long enough to validate them. Right. Like, cause I have friends like Tom Cowan who are like, actually cells don't exist. I'm like, what? <laughs> I know it's hard <laughs> to keep up. Deception I've participated in. So, you know, yeah. the model that I trained in is the neuroinflammatory model, psychoneuroimmunology and, you know, this concept that you can send the system itself and all the interconnected systems signals of safety through an, a non-inflammatory diet and through, you know, so again, from the physical to, um, you know, the, the psychological in that you are making the choices to offer your body this non-inflammatory diet. I will um, say uh, that like my, you know, change in consciousness uh, from germ theory to terrain theory has made a significant uh, difference in in my health, uh, yes. which I don't fully understand. Um, and I've heard this from like so many friends, you know, the second we stopped believing in germ theory and viruses, you know, we've never been healthier. Yes. Uh, I'm a person who would get sick at least once a year. I've gone now, I, like beginning of 2019 was the last time I got sick. That's amazing. Because yeah. yeah, we borrow from these models an acceptable framework to experience what we derive out of our victimhood. Victimhood is not like a, an idiot's game, right? Like mm -hmm. it's, it meets needs and it serves a very deep existential purpose. And you actually require the meeting of your needs through your experience of yourself as a hapless, helpless, dependent, childlike victim. You require that until you are ready to move into the self-initiatory because we don't have tribes and elders initiating us at this point. We are self-initiating um, domain of creator, I call it creatrix, consciousness, mm -hmm. right? So you can't take that from, so how dare you think that you can or should take that from someone, right? Like that was a hard, hard lesson as like a very um, programmed caretaker, which is itself a secret victim, right? So those of us in, in these like activist helper realms, like we have secret victims, right? And our secret victim often hides in the caretaker role. Yeah. Because if I imagine yeah. that it's my job and maybe especially my job um, to get someone to see something about themselves that, or to, to facilitate some, some, something that I imagine somebody else, like, that's why in my practice, I never had a sliding scale. Now you can make all sorts of commentary about how that's like ruthless or whatever. For me, it, that um, gaze that I would offer my patients, which is to say, I know you will figure this out mm. without story. Um, that could be very grounded and very real and seemingly objective variables in their financial reality, right? When I gaze upon them and say, I know you'll figure this out, it's a very different thing than to say, like, I will collude with your story of scarcity and lack, and I will come rescue you. That feels good to me, 
And it also reifies their disability. I know this is like not the sexiest topic and it could be arguably quite controversial, but that's how I see it. It reifies their disability, right? So when my girlfriend can't pay her rent and instead of even waiting for her to ask me for help, I, I say, listen, listen, I, I got you this month. Like, let me help you out. It looks like I'm helping her, but what I'm actually doing is participating in a victim triangle where she is the victim. I'm reifying her victimhood and we are, you know, battling this outside force of random, harmful, you know, secular um, variables that keep her indentured, you know, in this way, keep her, you know, compromised in this way. And I don't, I don't do her the solid, right? Uh, as a friend to envision with her that she will figure it out. And that's a part of her divine expression to tap into that impossible, you know, unforeseen realm of expansion and draw from it, right? So there is like a deep um, font of, of that divine channel to whatever you want to call your creator that can be accessed at any time. And in that um, channel is the unshakable belief that we live in a benevolent universe, right? Because when I believe that I have to, through my force of will, survive, I'm actually in a malevolent universe. And if I don't stay vigilant, and if I don't stay with my wits about me, in this like one-up game, then I will be punished. And the meritocracy, like, you know, uh, penal colony, like realm of universal consciousness. Oh my God, is that draining? And will your body express where you're holding that still because it wants to be transmuted because it wants to be um, seen, acknowledged and, and, and loved for its deceptive power, you know, and you're like, compassionate gaze upon that aspect of yourself that was holding that belief and saying like, wow, thank you so much. You really served me up until this point, because I believe that we get a lot out of even our symptoms, our experience of ourselves as sick, our experience of ourselves as patients. Um, it serves us until it doesn't. And then when it doesn't, there's like this sweet, like gratitude almost that arises and compassion. Like I look back on the former iterations of myself and I'm like, wow, I was really, this is hard, but that was like really hard because I didn't have a connection to something that could hold me, um, that could, that could fundamentally offer me sense-making, even when I can't see it with my eyes or hear it with my ears, I can feel like there's poetry here. I can feel this makes sense. I can feel that this is for me. I can feel I will be, you know, I can put my foot into the blackness of the abyss and the stone will rise, um, you know, to, to that footstep. So, I mean, I think, I think that germ theory, um, jailbreaking yourself from that to me it's become i mean there there's there are some that maybe are even bigger umbrellas um you know when it comes to cosmology and it comes to the ways in which like we've been programmed from our childhoods to doubt what we see and subscribe with obedience um yeah. to like this drip of here's what is here's what's true even if it's different from what you see um rockefeller education is really it's premised on that kind of conditioning. Uh, but I do see germ theory as like the greatest threshold for our consciousness. And I know that when I meet someone who has um, shed that belief system, it almost doesn't matter what they actually believe. Like who knows what makes us sick? 
I mm-hmm. could give you a lot of theories and a lot of them have a good amount of evidence, right? Who knows? You know, <laughs> you know what makes you sick and you will discover that. And it's going to be incredible because it's like decoding a dialect that literally you are the only anthropologist to decode. You're that essential, a character in your own health journey, right? And it's not just this trite, like, oh, you know, be your own doctor thing. Like it's literally true. And you can borrow and you will, you know, divine resources that will support your self-discovery, but knowing what doesn't make you sick, right? Like, no, no, there are not invisible particles jumping randomly between us, invading and infesting and taking over our cellular machine. No, no, that's not actually happening. I can say that with certainty because I have been a believer in the same scientific method that has itself failed to demonstrate that that is right. So so. like, that's not true. What is true? I don't know. But I know that when I meet somebody who either intuitively or scientifically has arrived at the conclusion that infection and contagion are not what we were told that they are. I know that I can, I can presume so much about their consciousness, about their, their heart energy, about their openness, about their readiness to take personal responsibility for their human journey. And about like almost um, a level of play that becomes available when a dimension of survival-based um, fear defenses are put to rest. It's like that big a deal that I, I actually have to surround all of my friends. Um, it was a weird grammatical construction. None of my friends <laughs> believe in germ theory. Well, I don't think I can be friends with somebody who does. And it's not because I'm like, like a germ theory racist or something like it's, it's just that I, I know that I can't play with those people easily. I don't know how else to put it. it. It's such a different plane of existence, right? Like once you, you know, pass that threshold, it's really hard to kind of reach back and like identify with somebody who hasn't. Um, Yeah, it's very, it's a very tricky thing. Yeah. And it doesn't mean that you can't get scared, right? It doesn't mean that you can't get scared. Um, It just means that when you do, you're committed to holding that fear in a space that does not inform your understanding of your body as like easily mistaken is the phrase that comes to me, right? Like as your body as faulty or weak, right? right? It's like all of these paradoxes are there. Um, you know, because if I were to develop symptoms, like, which I did, by the way, like I've never had, when I believed in germ theory, I never like, I'm not your model. I never got sick in medical school, residency and fellowship and my private practice for 10 years in New York city. I never took a sick day one time ever. Wow. Literally. Like I'm a psycho like that. So (laughs) now, and, and like that is, was not a healthy thing. Right. Because Lord knows when I was eating like Twizzlers and McDonald's and taking birth control and dyeing my hair black, you know, like I, it's not like I was some like pillar of health. No, my nervous system was literally like, we do not even have time to disburden this body, right? Like there is no, with this survival, you know, fight or flight um, is so required right now that there is no room 
for even the, you know, that catabolic phase of like letting go. Um, so I never got, a, I never had the flu or anything like that. I never got sick like that. And then as I, when I moved here to Miami four years ago, um, I started to, you know, have like little illnesses or whatever, uh, mm. um, whatever they are, like chest colds or whatever. And then in this window, I, two times, um, I got sicker than I have ever been in my whole life, mm. right? With the stigmata of, <laughs> you know, fever and body pain and anosmia, like, you know, this loss of smell thing I was like laughing about and telling people, of course you lose your sense of smell when you're congested. This is so stupid. They're just co-opting all of the symptoms possible under the umbrella of, you know, this imaginary illness. And, yeah. um, and I had already had the experience. So, so I got sick on spring break, like, and I say that because I live in, you know, a uh, partisan state. That's so I live in um, Florida, red state. Yeah. In a blue city. And I, uh, it was spring break and we were like this misbehaving state, right? At the time, this was back in April. And all of a sudden me and 20 of my friends simultaneously, many of whom had no contact with each other, um, developed the same t- symptoms all at once. I had already had the experience of traveling to Cartagena with seven girlfriends in January of 2020, coming back and five of us developed this same collection of symptoms, fever, body pain, um, dry cough, which, you know, again, from my medical training, is like a radiation pneumonitis symptom. Like a cough is supposed to be productive. It's supposed to disburden, you know, the, the tissues of, of stored it's liquefying the toxic, you know, toxicants and, and mobilizing them. Right. That's what everything is sneezing, sweating, diarrhea, vomiting, coughing. Um, so that was weird. But what was weirder is that there were five of us who got sick on arrival back to Miami from Cartagena, where we spent like a weekend mm-hmm. and we all have kids and partners. And we're in this community where we interact with a lot of other folks, like intimately not one single person that the five of us had contact with got sick. And two of the people that we were with did not get sick. Hmm. You tell me how that conforms to any iteration of the contagion model. That makes sense. I mean, germ theorists would pull out the fact that a group of people got sick together and kind of forget about the ones who didn't, right? Um, but within 24 hours, like we develop symptoms, not together in Colombia, here okay, in Miami, right? right? We develop the symptoms here. We spread it to no one, not one person. Right. Right. And so the least likely explanation is that somehow in Miami, we caught something that uh, nobody else around us did and spread it to each other, even though we were in different houses, we didn't see each other us women. Mm-hmm. I was like bed bound for 10 days. So we didn't see each other. So the only ex- the only logical explanation is that we were co-exposed to something in the environment or, you know, psychoemotionally, because mm-hmm. we did all go on a boat ride, um, again, as a believer in German medicine, where we had something called a death fright conflict. 
yeah. because it was like a super crazy boat ride. I was like screaming the whole time, literally, like just like up and down and up and down. And then we found out after we got off the boat in the following morning that the same boat ride, somebody died. Actually, literally like a tourist died that Thank afternoon. You. Whatever. So, I mean, it's it was just fueling this, you know, kind of a thing. So it was either that or something on the airplane or something in the, you know, Airbnb that we were in or some new 5G tower or whatever it was, something in the air. I don't know for sure. I'll never know for sure. But what I know is that the least likely explanation is that we're exposed to an invisible particle and spread it somehow only selectively to people in other houses that we didn't interact with after the, and like it just, that's just, that is literally when I explained to my children, when I asked my children the, these kinds of questions, like, what do you think would be an explanation? They literally can come up with four or five explanations before they would ever think there's something invisible jumping, even though it's dead or not even alive between us and right. taking over, right? That serves, however, um, a very, very powerful field of victim consciousness that is totally um, abandoned by these other models, right? So when you believe that you can't see the thing, literally, but also figuratively, even if you could, you don't have the credentials to see the thing. <laughs> the microscope. And, right? So you can't perceive where it is. So it's everywhere. And the only way you can see evidence of it is these artifacts through other people's bodies. So you're going to watch police and patrol your fellow humans. And you're going to experience them as dangerous, which you already do emotionally, right? So this is just a, you know, a somaticizing of what is already true about all of us, right? Like every single person I've interacted with before I started engaging in my own emotional maturation process was a vector of great harm and danger for me because I didn't know how to hold my own energy, hold my own boundaries, understand what my needs are and make choices you know, to be near or not near someone. I just was trying to like feel my way through life, appeasing and caretaking and then getting reactively upset and punishing. And, you know, it's like a minefield. So it's in many ways, a somaticized version of that emotional minefield we're already living in with each other. And when you need to be told like Munchausen's by proxy or something, like you need to be told that you are sick, even when you don't feel sick, which remember this has been going on in all of the screening medical technologies that exist, right? Why else would you get a breast mammogram? Why else would you get, you know, do a, like a prostate screening? Why else would you do any screening of any HIV test? Why would you do any testing for anything ever to detect something early, right? You would only do that because you're colluding with this concept um, that, this caretaker knows better than you do about your own body. This parent, this parentified authority knows better than you do. And so you better get their help to find out what's going on in there because you have no clue, right? So the, the asymptomatic patient, um, <laughs> as it was with HIV or is, I guess, it's crazy. Um, and with, with the pandemic is very essential part of the psychological operation um, and the dimensions of germ theory, because it's not sufficient, it turns out, to simply say people that look sick are dangerous, <laughs> right? Which has been the case with, with most so-called infectious illnesses prior to um, the HIV AIDS like dress rehearsal for the moment that we're in today. Um, because if, if someone who doesn't look sick 
can also be dangerous, then you have everyone, right? Then you have the whole population under your thumb. Serves their purpose very well, right? So how, how would you describe the, the general population now? Uh, these people who are still masking and, uh, you know, much has been made of like Robert Malone's, uh, um, you know, mass formation, psychosis, diagnosis of the population. Um, is that how you would describe it? How would you describe it? And is there, you know, what's the, what's the answer for these, for these people to get better? Can they get better? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If Only in Theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Again, like... I mean, as somebody who I am, I have been more upset by the mask um, dimension of this agenda than any other. <laughs> Me too. Like literally, like I have been let, I mean, I've written about it. Like I, my children are not allowed to wear one. You know, I've never worn one. Um, I, it's like a very hard line for me. And I still get upset. Like, Yesterday, my daughter, I had a little birthday party for her friends. Um, and we did like a, like a spa day, right? So like I hired these um, lovely women to come over and give like chair massages and manicures or whatever for the girls. Mm-hmm. And one of the women who came over was wearing a surgical mask. If you go to a nail salon, like back in the day, you know, like they often wear masks and probably should, even though like we have like organic nail polish or whatever, like there's like fumes and all this, her prerogative, right? Mm-hmm. She may have been wearing one having nothing to do, although she did walk in with it. So uh, yeah. with any of this, and I had like this whole internal process of whether or not I would ask her if she would feel comfortable removing it. Like this is like consumed me for 30 minutes. Okay. Like, <laughs> So like still at this point, two years later, living in a city where actually very few people are donning the muzzle, you know, like I still feel uncomfortable interacting with somebody who it's entirely their business and their choice to cover their face. Well, because it's not interaction. It's like, it's like an illusory form of interaction. If you can't see a person's like facial expressions, you know, I was on the train here in, in, I live in New York city and yesterday, and um, it was just horrible being on the train. I was a person who was always just like sat on the train and kind of like stared at people. (laughs) It's like people watched, you know, like I just love doing that. And I just find it so horrible now, you know, you like, look at a girl like, oh, I bet she's cute, but I don't really know, (laughs) you know, like I have no idea. Um, It's just so bizarre. It's like a giant satanic ritual. Um, But I did sort of realize that like, I, you know, I can't really exert my will on other people to ask them to take it off either, because then I would be doing the same thing. I mean, you could ask, like, that's where I've come to, like, without attachment if it feels important to me and my discomfort is already operating behind the scenes and I would otherwise be gaslighting myself and pretending that it's not, um, Mm -hmm. then I, it's within my rights to ask and within someone's to say, 
absolutely not. I'm wearing this. Okay, cool. Sure. You know, like I actually think that we're finding a way um, to experience what otherwise seemed impossible before I understood that it's my responsibility to know what I need to understand how to ask for it and to make choices accordingly. Right. Because in the beginning of this, um, I often talk about like a story where we had these friends who invited us to dinner when Miami was in lockdown. Literally, they literally locked the beaches down because that's apparently a thing that's yeah, because those are good for you. Oh my god. And it's, but like how <laughs> that even was pot like I they did that, okay, like patrolled the edges of the coastline. So we were invited to to dinner um with these um now like former friends and I mean not because of this but I'll make the point uh-huh. at the end which is that this speciation is happening for reasons that make a lot of sense right this separation of different factions of society um, mm-hmm. and it doesn't have to involve blame condemnation or even judgment right like that's where discernment comes in you make your choices right okay so we get invited to dinner and the dude is like well you know so excited to see you Um, just want you to know, like, we're doing the whole social distancing thing. So like, we're just going to set the table that way. And like, I'm just going to not give you a hug when I see you, but I'm like super psyched, you know, that. (laughs) And like, we didn't know each other like super well. So maybe that's where I can be like, oh, maybe he just didn't know. I don't know where, where I would fall on this whole thing. And so I was like, listen, like, thank you, you know, for inviting me and I'm not coming actually, um, because it's, it's as perilous to me, um, maybe in, in other levels that you might say are less important, but in my hierarchy of being, like it's as perilous to me to interact with you this way in this dehumanizing fashion, yeah. it costs me something I'm not willing to, to pay you. Um, and so I won't be coming, right? And I, at that time I was like, whoa, this PSYOP is like, it's beyond genius and requires, of course, germ theory to even have any legs. Um, because if someone, if we can't be in a room together without violation of our respective needs, that is a divide and conquer strategy that is foolproof, right? Like, because yeah. how, how do I be in a room with someone if they're putting on a mask is like a grave offense to my soul and my not putting on a mask is a grave offense to theirs. Like, how is this going to work out? However, I'm finding um, in my spiritual journey, you know, if you want to call it that, that actually this is the most amazing boot camp for my really coming into alignment with myself and making and, and retaining that power of choice that I do have, right? I had the choice to ask that woman or not. Right. And then if she said, no, I'm not taking it off. And that was like, really not going to work for me. I had the choice to ask her to leave my home. Right. Like there's all sorts of choices that just like an accordion, they like, they open up um, when you actually recognize that this doesn't need to be, you know, some sort of like a, a, a warfare model of like ideologies. It's simple choices between two people most of the time. Mm hmm. And it's, you know, the idea of government as this like monolith doing this to us or the cabal doing this to us. And trust me, like I've spent thousands of hours down these rabbit holes, as I know you have. Mm-hmm. And that is, um, it's ultimately a way 
to remain in victim consciousness. And that's why I see so many activists, and I've definitely been this activist too, um, really fomenting and fueling the fear that keeps us indentured. Because the opting out, I really don't think it looks like staying up on the churn, the ticker tape of whatever the hell they want us to look at next. And making sure your opinion is clear and your people know, you know, how wrong it is that this government is being right. Um, And that's, that's why, you know, in many ways, like the opting out looks like really taking responsibility for those one-on-one interactions. I mean, literally, whether it's with the FDA, the AMA, the IRS, like your county clerk, it's probably still going to be a one-on-one human to human, man to woman, woman to woman, woman to man interaction. And how are you going to navigate that? Right. If I go to a restaurant, they want me to put on a mask. I don't want to put on one, but I want to go to the restaurant. There's one human I'm talking to. Yeah. There's the restaurant staff and their policies and all this stuff, but there's still one human I'm bringing my energy to interact with that human's energy. How's that going to work out? Maybe great, maybe not, but I'm going to learn something about it that actually has nothing to do with the government. And that's why it's amazing to see, you know, especially in, in New York, um, my cousin is there. So I have a little bit of a window into it, even though, you know, that was my former stomping ground. And I just like, feel like it's like a world's away at this point. Um, when they've now as a part of this, like cognitive dissonance generating psyop, you know, they've lifted a lot of these mandates. Right. Yeah. But I'm sure you're finding that there are still many establishments that are choosing to virtue signal around the, around upholding. Yeah. yeah. And they knew that would happen. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, that is, it's working for them, you know, it's serving, um, it's serving them. And if you feel entitled to their business, access to their business, it probably serves you too, to feel victimized. Right. And it's like the worst that this is true, but it's really true for me. Like we only feel that victim sting because we kind of need it, like it, want it, are still working with it. It's we're still getting like a hit off it. And I say this as somebody who works with my victim consciousness every damn day, you know, it's not like I've like transcended it or something. It's just that once you are aware of like, oh, I'm getting something out of this. Like I went to, um, with some girlfriends to Naples, right. Which is another city. It's a red city in, um, in Florida back when the mask thing was real big still for a weekend, my birthday. And we got there and it was like a completely different energy, totally different environment. And no one was wearing masks where in Miami at the time, pretty much everyone still was. And, um, I could like walk into a supermarket, like (laughs) no problem. And, you know, we had this like amazing weekend and I was doing my same old thing, not wearing one, except now I was like with everybody else, not wearing one. It was like back to old times. And I actually found as uncomfortable as it was for me to, and shameful actually, um, to admit to myself that I didn't like it. Why not? I don't know. Because I felt my nervous system was already habituated to the struggle and was getting hits off of the struggle. Mm. And I didn't know who was on my team. That's and I apparently like playing this game of like, it's a game. 
it's a game, right? Until it's not like, until I'm ready to not need to get hits off of that game. And I can get hits off of just creating in life and being in bliss and joy and harmony or whatever. But there is this concept in somatic experiencing that you have to titrate into capacity, right? Like to, we want to, we like, we want to like live this blissful, harmonious, pleasure filled life. Really? You're like, I'm not ready for that. I'm not ready for that. I will collapse. I will find conflict. I will go back into the old field of like getting like my pleasure through that projection of, you know, that bigger energy outside of me, punishing me and keeping me constricted and small until I slowly, slowly learn to hold expansion. So, right. Like I encourage people like the next amazing thing that happens to you that you're super pumped and psyched about, see how long you can hold that high for most of us. It's like an hour, an afternoon. And then we will subconsciously find a way to focus on our shitty to-do list or that conflict we're still having with our cousin or like, oh, oh, like this financial dread or whatever. We'll find a way even to generate conflict with our partner to collapse our experience into a more familiar terrain of constriction. And these are just some of the inconvenient truths of stepping into Real sovereignty. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America NA, member FDSE. That's, That's a really fine. good point. I think a lot of people really like run on that sort of thing. And um, and yeah, yeah. mass thing, like high, you know, highlighted kind of like who's on your team and who's not. And if you're not ready to experience like, you know, like going down to a red state, you know, you're kind of in the dark all of a sudden. Um, and if you're not ready to experience that, um, yeah, that could be, I guess, traumatic, right? I just noticed, like, I guess I, I'm not actually ready for what I say I want, you know, which is like this whole thing to be over, yeah. right? And, and, and that makes sense because we know there's something massive coming out of being birthed through this like very tight canal, right? Yeah. Um, and the readiness for that, I think will, in my, from my perspective, will require that those of us who are interested enough curious enough about the ways that we are standing like in our own path, like the ways that we are getting in our own way. Right. And, and the ways that we are constricting the flow of love, like through our own body. Um, Those of us who are committed to learning how to love ourselves and therefore liberating our energy for others. um, I think that it, it really requires that we look at, the parts of us that are not committed to that, that are not interested, that are not curious and that are keeping us in like tethered down to the old framework. Um, Because I really see that split. Like there are, there are people who are emotionally ready uh, to integrate around their creative consciousness. And there are people who are not emotionally ready and they're literally just not, it's not their fault. It's no one's fault. This is a blame free zone. Right. And they can do their thing. 
And then it's up to me, you know, to make my decisions and choices and surround myself with energies that I enjoy and live my damn life. Right. Cause if I'm playing on the field of the world stage, it's just the greater enactment in my opinion of this inner conflict, this inner warfare that is literally between my own damn parts. Um, that's what I've discovered as somebody who spent many years in the activist realm, very focused on what was going on in the outside honestly, very avoidant of the dimensions within me that were exact mirrors of the players that I was seemingly um, organizing on the outside, you know? It's a really great point. And I think, yeah, I've, I've kind of slowly learned that, uh, you know, the best way through a lot of this stuff is to really just cha- take your your pieces off the chessboard, so to speak, and um, don't, you know, don't give power to to their don't operate within their framework. Excellent advice. Um, oh, I know we're out of time. So um, uh, where, I guess, you know, what are you up to now and where, where can people uh, keep up with your, with your work? Um, so as you well know, like the censorship shuffle is, is real mm-hmm. and I could derive a lot of scarcity, fear and uh, you know, victim, consciousness around that. Um, however, I do, I do know that the people who are meant to be in my field will be in my field somehow. Um, so now I'm just at kellybroganmd.com and I'm in, um, in a moment of transition where I am really re-envisioning like, what is it that I would like to offer? Um, and that will be sort of played out probably through my membership Vital Life Project. Um, and then I still have my flagship program um, vital mind reset that I referenced earlier and we'll see, you know, I'm always discovering new parts of myself and it's a bit of a magic carpet ride. If anyone wants to get on. Cool. Sounds good. I'll, I'll hop on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for stopping by and talking to me. I hope you come back sometime. I'm sure there's a ton more I could ask you, but uh, thanks. Appreciate your time. It was a pleasure. The information presented in this program is not intended as legal, health, or nutritional advice. It is provided for informational purposes only. Alighton does not endorse nor accept responsibility for any statements, views, or opinions expressed by its guests.